Praise God. Let's, let's just have a word of prayer before we get into tonight's study. Father, we just want to say thank you once again, Lord, for the freedom that we have to come and to study the Word. And Lord, our hearts are hungry for you tonight, Lord. hungry to, to grow in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. So help us once again, Holy Spirit, to get to grips with the Scriptures, Lord, what you've revealed through the Scriptures. May just bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I know we were thrown out by the encounter weekend, but there was plenty of teaching on the encounter weekend. For those of you that weren't able to participate this time, there will be other opportunities. But uh, let's just briefly remember where we, we left it last time. And we're in chapter 2, <coughs> praise God, both screens are working. And, uh, yeah, Paul, Paul was trying to, he was dealing with his, his Jewish kinsmen, his brothers and sisters in, 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 in Judaism. And um, we've already seen how in Genesis chapter 1, he delivered a very a very damning verdict about the, the Gentile people like you and I, who were completely lost. Even though, even though they had, or they have, an understanding. Everyone has an understanding of who God is. There is an intrinsic knowledge okay, that God has put on the inside of every human being that um, to, to, to know that He exists, that God exists. And we we suppress that, we can ignore that, we can try and substitute that with other things, but it's there. And not only that, we've learned that God has revealed himself through, through creation. So as we look around creation, what we're trying to say is, there is enough evidence to, to uh, condemn us. There's enough evidence to point to the, the existence of God to be able to condemn human beings. However, God selected for himself a people. And with that people he established a covenant, a very special covenant. And we can read about it in the book of Genesis again. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then from Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. And we spoke last time about how these people value the, the right of circumcision. That it was God who gave circumcision as a physical mark on the body of the, the covenant that would exist between himself and his people. And they valued it highly. The problem is, they were also given a standard for living. It wasn't just about being circumcised, you know, physically. They had a standard for living so that they could represent God, they could be the the light of the world, if you want, you know, and reveal God to the nations. But unfortunately, Paul made it very clear that they hadn't lived up to that standard. And so, he wants to hammer home that circumcision only avails if the law is obeyed. You may, as Jews, you may boast in the fact that you've been selected as a people, you've been chosen as a people, that God has a covenant with you. You know, and, and, and that part of that covenant, the physical mark of that covenant is, is circumcision, physical circumcision. But God always made it clear. He said, 
don't, I don't just want you to, to have physical circumcision, I want you to circumcise your hearts. You've got to have new life, you've got to be able to reveal who, who God is and what he's done in your life. And they didn't. So Paul stresses that circumcision alone does not guarantee membership in the covenant people of God. And this is one of the main problems. Uncircumcised Gentiles, okay, so those, those who do not have the physical mark of circumcision, but keep the law's requirements, will be treated as though they were circumcised. Imagine a Jewish person hearing that about those words. Basically saying, look, the Gentiles who don't have that mark on their, on their bodies of the covenant, they're going to replace you, they're going to substitute you. And that's exactly what happened. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 11. And we'll get there, we'll deal with that when we get there. These people will even judge the Jew. And we talked about that, that, that could... That could could be saying that, you know, by the way that we've lived our lives as Christians, enabled by the Holy Spirit, that's going to condemn the Jews who have not, even though they've got a physical mark, they've not lived up to the standards. Maybe Paul is referring to Gentile Christians, but also it's possible that he's speaking hypothetically. I actually think he's referring to Gentile Christians, because he's dealing with Gentiles and Jews all the way through. And God always requires circumcision of the heart, always. You know, it was never just about physical mark. Okay. Um, so, tonight, let's jump forward. Oh. There we are. So, let's read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and now overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust and inflicts wrath as speakers of man? Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, as some, as some affirm that we say. Their condemnation is just. Okay, let's just stop at the end. This is where we're really going to pay attention to try and follow his reasoning, you know, his argumentation. Remember what Paul is doing? Paul is anticipating the objections. He's answering, he's imagining that the questions are going to come at him, the opposition, and he wants to answer those and address those. Alright? So, first thing he says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? After everything you've said, you would expect him to come out with nothing, right? There's no, no advantage to being a Jew. But he doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say that's something that we need to hold on to because we can go too far down that road. You know, we've said a lot of a lot of negative things about the Jewish people that he's he's brought out, and we can we can jump to the wrong conclusions as many have. That really there is no advantage in being Jew, and God's finished with the Jews, and that's it. But that's not what he says. It's not what he says. What does he say? He says, verse two, much in every way. Wow, much in every way, what do you mean for? Well, praise God. In this new stage of God's plan of salvation, he has provided equal access to both Jew and Gentile. I think that's what we need to, to bear in mind at the outset, that he's, he's already condemned Gentiles, but he's also condemned Jews, one without the law, one with the law. But he's, we're going to see that God has provided equal access to both Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile now can, can approach God on a level, on the same level. Yes? Bless the Lord. However, he preserves the genuine privileges of Israel. He preserves the genuine privileges of Israel. And he says, in verse 2, let's keep reading much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God, all the words, the very words of God were committed to them. And actually we're, we're sitting here tonight with our Bibles. We are, we are lost to these people, to the Jewish people that preserved the scriptures intact throughout centuries. And centuries where they could quite easily be wiped out, you know, and, 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 and done away. And so to, to them were committed the oracles of God. For chapter 9, let's just flip forward to chapter 9. Again, we're going to deal with this in more detail. God's dealing with Israel when we get to chapter 9. But let's just have a look at those first five verses. Chapter 9. Verse 1 to 5. I tell the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience also bears bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, patriarchs, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And so you can see there Paul's anguish at the state of the, the state of affairs with Israel, the fact that the majority of them had missed, had missed the visitation of the Messiah, had not received the Messiah. However, I need to see, he lists the privileges, and he doesn't speak about them in the past tense, as if they used to belong to Israel, but they don't anymore. He speaks about them in the present tense, the present continuous, it's ongoing. These, these things still belong to the people of Israel. They're still God's chosen nation. Okay, even though many of them 
have failed to receive Messiah. God still has a purpose for Israel, and again, we'll get there. But at this point, all we need to do is just to understand that there is an advantage to being a Jew, but at the same time, that implies responsibility. Responsibility. I always say, now listen, there's no better thing than seeing a Jew coming to Jesus. When you see a Jew coming to Jesus, and you, you see, you see a, a Jew that is fulfilled, a Jew in the, in the real, the, the, the deepest sense of the word, a Jew that is, is realized, that is, 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 is discovered his Messiah. Many of them, they know their Old Testament, they know the, the writings of the rabbis and so on, and then suddenly they, they encounter Yeshua as the Messiah. And you know, they're going to be some of the most awesome um, expositors of the scriptures, teachers of scripture. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing seeing these Jewish people coming to the understanding of who Yeshua Jesus is. However, we know the Jews have not always lived up to the requirements that God imposed. But God remains faithful to his word. And do you remember we spoke about that before, that all the way through the scriptures we see how Israel as a nation failed time and again. Time and again. But you see that God is faithful. Maybe one generation fails, but God always preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant, and by doing so, he keeps those promises alive. So God is faithful. God is faithful. And yes, they've messed up. And you would expect him to say, look, there's absolutely no advantage anymore to the Jew. You know, you've got no privilege any more than anybody else. But that's not what he says. That's not what he says. And obviously, he's anticipating that, that, that argument. Okay? Is everybody with me? Good. So, just following a little bit further on with his argument. Um, So, so in verse 3 it says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Again, he says, certainly not. And that's emphatic in the Greek. Okay? Certainly not. In other words, that, that, that their failures will not annul the faithfulness of God. Their failures will not annul the faithfulness of God. If some did not believe, would their unbelief reverse God's faithfulness in no way. In no way would God's faithfulness be altered because of the unfaithfulness of his servants. God's faithfulness to his word includes commitment to punish sin as well as blessing his people. So it's not that God's, you know, they've got it wrong, they've messed it up, that God simply casts them aside and wants nothing else to do with them. Part of the covenant relationship that he has with the people of Israel is that he disciplines them. That's why generations of them had to, had to go to, uh, certain generations had to go off into exile into Babylon. They went, if you read some of the accounts of what happened to Israel, you know, we've said it before, but he, he, God is patient. He sends the prophets, prophet after prophet, prophetic word, 
and the people are stubborn and they don't listen. <coughs> they depend on donations to try and save them and so on and so forth. But that, there comes a point where God says, Enough. Enough. And he enters into judgment with his people. Judgment begins in the house of God. And, and, and he punishes his people to bring about repentance and restoration. And that's exactly what happens. So, so it's part of that. It's not that he cuts them off and says, oh, I'll finish with these lot. No, part of that ongoing covenant relationship is that he will discipline, he will punish, and he will also bless. Bless and punish them. If you remember when they were coming into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and so on, it talks about the, he lists the blessings and the curses that will come upon you. When you come into this land that I'm giving to you, you know, if you do this, I'll bless you in this, and you'll enjoy this, and so on and so forth. But if you do that, then you'll be cursed. And these things will happen to you, you'll be taken out of the land and so on. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, the rest of the Old Testament is just the outworking of those blessings and curses that were listed in Deuteronomy. That's it. Read the book of Deuteronomy, look at the blessings and the curses, the curses, you know, the, 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 the oh, the words are not coming to my voice, I don't know why, I'm tired of it. The basis, if you want, the basis of their relationship in, as they were in the land. Just read those blessings and curses, and then continue reading the Old Testament. And as you do, you look kings and chronicles and judges and so on, you'll just see the outworking of those blessings and curses. All the way through. Okay? Bless the Lord. Anyway, he goes on. Uh, Certainly not. Indeed, verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And all he's doing is he's acknowledging how God is just when he punishes as well as when he blesses. That's all he's doing there. So he says, verse 5, but if our own righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust and inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. And again, certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? Verse 7, for if the truth of God has increased through my light to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do an evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reporting, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So the question, second question, would he? What he says, would it not be unjust of God to punish the Jews for their sin, since it is through the sin of the Jews that God's righteousness was manifested? Did you follow that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so let's, let's go again. So, so God, and he's going to speak about this righteousness. And, and he's, remember, Paul is anticipating an argument. So he's saying, well, surely it would be unjust of God, it would be unjust of God to punish Israel for their sin if God always meant to bring about good from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Why would he punish if, 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 if God was going to bring this about and use this to bring about righteousness and glory and something good from it? 
How can you be just in punishing the Jews for, for fighting? Is everybody with me? Good. Uh, you Yeah. Alright, All right, that's, that's the argument. Alright, God is righteous. And the condemnation of those who sin against his word is also righteous. Listen, this is the key. The ends do not justify the means. That's the point. That's what he's anticipating from you. There's no justification for your failure. Even though God is going to bring good from it, even though God is going to reveal his righteousness through it, there is still no justification for your failure. Israel. And God is just in punishing you, Israel, even though he's bringing good from it. Genesis 18, 25. Who wants to read that for us? Genesis 18, verse 25. Genesis 19, verse 25. Terrible. It was terrible. You remember when Jesus was going through the streets and the women were waiting 
And he's saying, don't work for me. Work for yourselves. You know? Because he knew exactly what was coming on. And so God dealt with that generation. He couldn't overlook it. And yet, even then, even so, he, he brought good from it. In that, the, he preserves the remnant of believers through it. And that the gospel goes out then into the nations. You with me? Praise God. Okay. So, not finished. Let's read from verse 9 through to verse 20. What then? Are we better than they? Speaking as a Jew, alright? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the ways of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for, the, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. <coughs> okay. So basically, he's just, he's just concluding his previous arguments from Genesis 1 and 2. He wants to make it absolutely clear that Jews and Gentiles are guilty. That's it really. That's what he's doing, right? Remember that the Jews have the law, the written law. They have the law, but they've broken it. That's the problem. Very simple, really. Praise God, you were blessed with the law. But when you're Mount Sinai, you accepted the law. You entered into covenant, and you promised to keep it. But you've broken it. The Gentiles sinned against the law of moral conscience. The Gentiles don't have the same level of, of understanding or revelation that the Jews have. But they do have enough to condemn them. That moral conscience that we talked about. So in other words, yes, the Jews have broken <coughs> that, that great revelation. They've broken the, the, their, their covenants and their, their laws responsibilities, but the Gentiles they are enough to condemn them too. Everybody's in trouble. From verse 9 through to verse 18 what Paul does there is he's picking certain, certain passages of scripture from Psalms and I think from the prophets and so on. He's doing what they, what they he's using a technique they used to use, the rabbis used called pearl stringing. So imagine you have a line and then you, you're stringing pearls one by one. Right? So what he's doing, a bit like we have a topical sermon sometimes. Sometimes we'll preach on, on a topic, I don't know, uh, let's say forgiveness. 
and then, and then the preacher will pick different um, passages from different parts of the New Testament, for example, and put them together and string together a sermon. Okay, that's what he's doing there. So you can see he's picking out different passages from what we refer to as the Old Testament to hammer home his point. And his point basically is there is none righteous. Nobody's righteous. Oh, but we've got the law we broke it. You broke it. There's no one righteous. 3 verse 9. Uh, got, so we can divide the text into four points, four things that it brings in this pearl shrinking. Number one, all are under sin. All are under sin. There is none, none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God as he should do. None are righteous, 3, 10 to 12, which is Psalm, from Psalm 14, 1 to 3. He then goes on to speak about the totality of sin, what that looks like. What that unrighteousness looks like. And it's interesting that he speaks about sins of speech, doesn't he? He speaks about the things that the people are saying for a start. He says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And that's interesting if you remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, out of the mouth, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what you're saying reveals where your heart's at. Okay? But then he goes on to talk about sins and violence from verse 15. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. And that kind of sums up the biggest problem I think we face. Throughout all of our society, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Take from Psalm 36 and verse 1. And we've said it before. You know, if there's one thing that we so desperately need to rediscover in our churches today, it's the fear of God. It, because we've made him, he's like, he's like, he's like Aladdin's lamp, he's like the genie from Aladdin's lamp. In some places, the way that it's presented, you know, just a, a, a cuddly old man sitting on the throne who just wants to give you everything you ever want, as long as you know, you come and ask it the right way, or they just give you everything you want. We're talking, I mean, goodness me, we're talking about the, 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 the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Creator of the universe, who, who, who dwells in the unapproachable light. You know, when people, like John, for example, if we read in John's Apocalypse, John, John's Revelation, when, 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 when he saw the resurrected, glorious Jesus, he felt, he felt as dead before him. You know, and some of the way that, that we're, we're presenting Jesus today, nowadays, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And you can tell, not just by the way that we speak, or presented, but by the way that we live our lives. Because the way we live our lives reveals whether or not we fear God. Not just that we love God. To love God's not enough. We need to fear Him as well. And so it's, it's incredibly important that we get that balance right in our relationships with Him. Okay. 
So, the final verdict, the final verdict, comes in verse 19 and verse 20 again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What is God's final verdict on humanity? Number one, Jews are guilty as they are under the law. They are under the law, the written law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. They're guilty. Secondly, no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. So, let's think about the law for a moment because... If we're not careful, we can, we can see the law in a very negative light, right? Because at the end of the day, the law brings condemnation. And I hope, I've said this enough times now, that you've got this within your hearts. Just remember, everything that comes from God is good. Everything that comes from God is good and perfect and beautiful and holy. It's from God, alright? But we can see that the effect that the law has, so the law is good and holy and perfect, but the effect that it's had on humanity has been negative. Why? Why? Because the problem exists within humans and not within the law. The law serves to highlight the problem of human nature. The law articulates what sin is. Sin was in the world from the beginning, but until the law, it, had, it wasn't defined. That it became, there became transgressions then. When we have a law, then we can transgress the law, can't we? So it puts into words what sin looks like. And it's almost, it's like, it's like a red rag to a bull. It's like, you know, if you put the red rag to the bull, what happens to the bull? And, and, and it's, it's almost like the law is presented to humanity, and it's like that red rag. It just does something, stimulates something within you. Thou shalt not, and yet we end up doing it. And we're pulled away, we're enticed by our desires and everything. It has that effect upon us. Not because it, the law, is evil in any way. The law is perfect and good. But because there is a problem in our hearts. Is everybody with that? Good. And so, no one is going to be declared righteous by the works of the law. Why? Because that's not the point of the law. What does he say? Verse, does he say it? Verse number 20. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law, you know what sin looks like. <coughs> that's his point. That's it's like a spotlight. Bang. You know, he just said this is this is what it looks like. This is what sin looks like in your life. And so there needs to be a change. First, you need to find a way to be forgiven. But also there needs to be a change on the inside, your inside, my inside. Yes? Okay, good. 
Remembering Christ, when we talk about the law, again, there's a lot of confusion about the law. When I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And as you read through it, you'll see there are different elements to the law, different aspects. There, there are moral aspects to the law, moral, moral parts of the law. There are, there are civil parts of the law that used to guide and, and really judge uh, uh, the people's civil affairs. And there are also ceremonial parts of the law. Okay, so you've got moral, civil, and ceremonial. And the problem we have is when we're reading like the book of Leviticus, you've got them all mixed, they're all interwoven. So it's difficult, isn't it? And you're thinking, well, what part of the law exists today? Well, well, well we know that Christ came to fulfill the ceremonial law, didn't he? We don't need a tabernacle anymore. We don't need sacrifices anymore, praise God. You know? We, we have access into the, the presence of the Father because Christ fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law. The civil laws, Israel still needs a civil law. But of course, civil laws change. You know, as, as society changes, so civil laws need to change. But the moral aspect of the law never changes. What has been what was immoral then? Is immoral in the moment. Do you get that, guys? Praise God. God doesn't change. Amen? So that's important to, to understand. Alright, but anyway, if there's one thing you need to remember, it is that no, no flesh, by the deeds, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In other words, by trying to keep the laws, nobody will be justified in his sight. Why? Because if you break one, you're guilty of breaking them all. According to Paul. Perfection is the standard. He said, well, that's impossible. Well, of course it's impossible. Of yourself, of your own efforts, you're always going to fall flat on your face. So there needs to be another way. There needs to be another way to be righteous in God's sight. Okay? Jews and Gentiles, you are condemned of the law. Alright, we're just going to introduce the next few verses. So, the good news. Remember, Paul has been elaborating on what the bad news is. And everybody's in the same boat. The good news. Let's start with verse 21 to, through to verse 23. It goes on to 26. But now, Gentiles with your moral law, you know, your moral conscience, you've sinned. 
Jews, you've had a beautiful revelation extra, but you've sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, no one will be justified by the deeds of the law. Why? Because we can't keep it. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. There is a way to be right with God outside of the law, if you want. You understand? Another way. Well, look what it says. It's been witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's interesting. If you're a Jew and you're listening to that, you what? Uh, a way to be righteous apart from the law. And then he goes on to say it's witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Actually, the law and the prophets were all pointing towards this new way. And he's going he's to develop that in chapter 4, okay? So just hold, hold your horses there. He's going to explain why and how. So we say the Old Testament bears witness to the fact that there was a righteousness coming from God apart from the law, and now it's been revealed. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, wow, well, I know that. Well, of course you do. This is the ABCs of the gospel, isn't it? This, friends, according to Martin Luther, one who brought about the great Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was the very centre of the scriptures. It was the central point of the scriptures. He says, there is a uh, in the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all, on, on all who believe. Of course, the all, he has in mind Jew and Gentile. Believe. Those who believe. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. How can that be? Lord. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 24. We're going to take this apart a bit more next, next time. But, um, verse 24 to 26 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed, had, had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow. So, Paul, you're saying that there is a righteousness that exists apart from the law, the way to be made right with God, apart from the law. Has condemned everyone. And that, 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 that righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But how does that work? How can, so, how can we become righteous apart from the law through Jesus Christ? And then he's going to build on that and explain how. More. We have been justified freely by the grace of of God. All of this salvation, all of it, is by the grace of God first and foremost. Yes? God doesn't need to do it. He didn't need to do it. He chose to do it. The grace of God. The unmerited favour 
with God. Verse 24. Because of that unmerited favour, that grace of God, we have been redeemed through the death of Christ. We've been redeemed. Remember the word redeemed? You remember what it means, redeemed? Bought back. A price has been paid. To, uh, it's usually a, 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 a ransom has been paid to buy back a slave, for example. So a slave can have their freedom. Alright? So we have been redeemed through the death of Christ. How does that work? And then Paul uses a really loaded word. Okay? It says Christ was the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. Now some verses, some of your versions may say the mercy seat. Anybody say that? Does it say the mercy seat? Propitiation. Instead of propitiation, Christ is the mercy seat. Does anybody say that? No? Okay. Okay. Atonement. Yes. Really interesting word. Really, like I said, loaded word in the Greek hilasterion. Because it, it can be used to describe the act of placating the wrath of the Greek gods, for example. Okay, so you know that the Greek gods. You know, you could be having a hard time and you could work it out that they were angry with you for some reason. You've got to bring them some kind of offering to placate their wrath. Okay? Now, we know that God is not like the Greek gods. That the Greek gods are angry one minute and the demons are really not able to, you know, up and down. And, and he's not capricious. <coughs> but when we talk about God's wrath, the God of the Bible, we know that it's, it's a natural and consistent response of a holy God to everything that is contrary to his nature. So because he is holy and he's just, he abhors sin. And, and as, as, a, as, a, as a, a manifestation of that, that hatred towards sin, wrath comes forth. You understand? It's not that today he's got a bit of an headache and he's a bit grumpy and he's going to take it out on you, but tomorrow will be alright. It's a consistent uh, 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 situation, if you want. It's a consistent response. But look what's said here. He says, Christ was the propitiation for our sins. So, so God naturally, seeing the sins of humanity, what's the response from the Holy God? Wrath. Remember right at the beginning what he said? That the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. In that he was giving them over. Okay? And that wrath will, will, um, will um, culminate in the day of judgment. Alright? But he's also given a way out. Have we got an umbrella? Or not? Have we got an umbrella with it? I love to use an umbrella with it. So I use an umbrella for everything. Yeah, Christ. What happened on the cross of Calvary? Christ takes upon himself all of the wrath, the holy wrath of God against sin, paying the price for our sins. Yes? So, so Christ, yeah, come on, cat, hold it up, is it broken? I don't know. Praise the Lord. Wow, that's amazing. Praise the Lord. There you go. 
let's imagine, let's imagine that the, the rain is falling all around, the rain is the wrath of God. Okay? It's a just wrath because everybody sins. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven in different ways and will be revealed on the day of judgment. Christ comes along, and on the cross of Calvary, he who knew no sin became a sin sacrifice for us, didn't he? Okay? So on that cross, God was in Christ. Don't forget, it wasn't the Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And all of the righteous anger of God against sin was being poured out on Christ. Okay? So let's imagine that this represents Christ on the cross. So he becomes a propitiation. What he does on the cross propitiates or placates the wrath of God. It pays the price so that we might come under and out of the rain. So when we, when, we, when we come into Christ by faith, we step into the benefits of that. He took all of our, all our sin and, and guilt and everything upon himself. And we step out from under the reign of God's wrath into the reign of God's grace. Can you see that? Good. You'll never look at the umbrella the same way again, will you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. The only way that we could be righteous is that righteousness was given to us externally. You understand? Only Christ could pay the price for us on the cross of Calvary. When we step in by faith, we step under that umbrella, out of the reign of God's wrath, into the covering of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Amen? Bless the Lord. So, and just to finish, Christ's death demonstrates God's justice. Verse 26. He says here, um, actually I'm going to read from verse 25. When God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now what does it mean then? Before Christ, there were a number of people, generations of people, who had faith, and they were justified by faith, looking ahead to Christ's coming and his death. <coughs> but they still sinned. So their sins needed to be paid for. As well as our sins, both sides of the cross, we've explained this before, right? So, so, so if you're born in the Old Testament, Christ hadn't come yet, but you wanted to walk with the Lord, you, you'd obey him by doing one thing. But what about all the sin? What about all the mess that you, you've done? How does that get sorted? The cross. You'd be looking ahead to the cross. You'd be looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. But we, born the other side of the cross, he's been, he's done the business, he's paid the price, we're looking back. Does that make sense? Because God could, remember what we said earlier, God cannot overlook sin. He can't ignore sin. And so those that sinned before Christ came, those sins needed to be paid for too. Otherwise God wouldn't be just. Yeah? That's the Lord. So when did it happen? The cross of Calvary. All the sins of the past, all the sins of the future, all of it was paid for at the cross of Calvary. Alright? Okay, so God's death demonstrated God's justice. God is just. The price is paid. Nobody got away with anything. Christ paid the price. God is righteous, or is just.
but is also the justifier of him who has faith in Christ. How, how so? so? So God needs to, he wants to justify us, but he's got to be just at the same time. How can he remain just and yet justify us when we're sinners? By substituting. You understand? So I'm going to step into their, in their world, I'm going to step into their dilemma, I'm going to pay their price. I am going to substitute them. Praise God. And therefore he remains just because he's punished our sins in his son at Calvary's altar. But he's also now able to justify others through faith in that, that sacrifice. Amen? Praise God. That's his point. That's his point. That's the beauty, that's the mystery, that's the wonder of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is righteous and also the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus Christ. The way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only one. Remember what we said today? The only one. Everything else falls short. All of the religious devotion, you know, the, 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 the attempts to try and follow role, uh, con codes of conduct and so on, all of that falls short. The only way is to receive the righteousness that comes from Him through faith in Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for us in our stead at the cross. Amen. Bless the Lord. This is how James Denny, a theologian, he summarizes it like this, and then we'll pray. There can be no gospel, no good news, unless there is such a thing as righteousness of God for the unlikely. Think about that for a moment, okay? But just as little can there be any gospel unless the integrity of God's character be maintained. The problem of the sinful world, the problem of all religion, the problem of God in dealing with a sinful race is how to unite these two things. The Christian answer to the problem is given by Paul in the words, Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Did you get that? Or is it something you need to think about? He's basically just saying that, you know, it's what we've just said, that he is just and he is the justifier. Okay? And he's made it possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's have a break. Have a tea. Have a tea. Whatever. So what, what have we seen tonight? We've learned tonight. We've seen that the law, though it is good, though it came from God. Unfortunately, the effect that it has is negative because of people. We've seen all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Jews, Gentiles. <coughs> We've seen that by the works of the law, by trying to observe the law, no one will be made righteous. Because we just don't do it well enough. None of us. We all fall short, don't we? Yeah. If you break one, you're guilty. Sin, basically. And it's sin that separates. Remember, it was one transgression that separated Adam and, and uh, humanity and, uh, and God. Yeah? yeah? 
Very interesting. Um, but, but, praise God, God has revealed a way to be made righteous that can be applied to Gentiles and Jews. Okay? Uh, that, that's apart from the law. So it means we're not living striving all the time, trying to be good enough. Because somebody's been good and good enough for us. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, so so and Paul's kind of Paul's summary he concludes by saying that uh, um, you know we said earlier that how can how can a just judge acquit a guilty person and remain just. Can't do that unless there's a righteous basis to do so. And the basis that the just judge has acquitted us as guilty sinners is because the price has been paid by someone else for us. Amen? As our representative, as our substitute. And all of that is God's a manifestation of God's grace. Didn't need to do it, we chose to do it. And that's why we can say that he loves the world so much. Yes? However, notice that the way to be justified, so so when the, when the umbrella's up, there's a sense in which, oh no, whoever that was, <laughs> when, that, when, when, that, when that umbrella, when Christ was on that cross, that he was paying the price for every single sinner. That has ever lived and ever will live. Okay? So what he did on the cross was sufficient for every person. However, it only becomes efficient in our lives when we come to him by faith. It's not automatic, not universal. We've got to appropriate what he's done. We do that by faith. We step under the umbrella by faith, if you want. Out of the reign of his wrath. Amen. Well, it would be fair to say that the propitiation absorbs the wrath of God. Yes. Because I've always thought of it like this, I'm a bit of a sergeant. Um, sometimes <coughs> the exercise would be attacked, they put the shields on, and the fire comes, fire power comes, and it absorbs yes. the fire power. That's a good manager. But I always see Jesus as absorbing it. He does just like, he doesn't just fall over him. He takes absolutely. He pays the price, you know. Yeah. And there's something that's why I mean, I mean, for centuries theologians have spent hours and hours, you know, just thinking about the transaction that took place at the cross and yeah. and, and, and the fact that the sinless Son of God would, would take upon Himself all of our guilt for a start. Yeah. You know, I mean, goodness me, how does that work? But, but absorb within himself all of the, the, the guilt of sin. When he's sinless and the nothing. You know, and, and then all of the, well, not just on the cross, but all of the build to it, the, the rejection, the, the whip, whipping and the beating and everything else, the passion of the Christ. That for me is the manifestation of God's holy wrath against sin that culminates in the cross. And then, like you say, he's absorbing. He's absorbed the guilt and so on of, of, of man's sin, but he's also absorbing the righteous punishment of God Almighty on himself. And I think, yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? I think another one is, sorry, to... No, mate, come on. Is um, the idea of crossing paper, locking up the 
league is so good. So good it's because good. he blocks out how sin. <laughs> and it's almost how there's two times a sin state and it brings blocks in there, but it's mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Absorbs the that's, that's really good. Yeah, man. That's it, guys. That's it. And you know, spend time thinking about it. Just dwell and think about that. That is awesome. It's awesome. So now God has a righteous basis to be able to equip the sinner as they come and they put their faith in what Christ has done for them in their stead. God can declare them acquitted. can declare them justified. And it's so powerful what Christ did. It's almost just as if I'd never sinned. You've heard that many times. Just as if I'd never sinned. Isn't that wonderful? Goodness me. Bless the Lord. Okay, so just to finish up a uh, quick discussion.